he regresado. Y'all ain't know I was with the Spanish, did you? Y'all ain't know I knew that Espanol. Yes, sir. That's three years of high school, one year in college. I'm still not very good at it, to be quite frank. Uh, if my voice sounds a little bit different today, it's because I'm sitting in a different setting. I'm sitting in front of my TV in our little game room instead of in where I usually record just because I simply couldn't pull myself away, man. Basketball has returned. Basketball is upon us. There's NBA basketball being played as we speak. I'm watching the Clippers absolutely manhandle the Pelicans. Right, the second half just started. It's 77 to 49. This is not a good look for the Pelicans. A lot of people thought the Pelicans would have a chance to come in and usurp Memphis for this uh, for this eight seed. Looks like they're about to be down two games uh, through eight games in this uh, regular season finishing period. So I don't know if uh, New Orleans is going to be the one to do it. If anybody, it's going to be Portland. They looked pretty good. They beat Memphis. So I think they're two and a half games back now. And to be honest with you, as a Lakers fan, that scares me. That scares me, man. I'm not trying to see Dame. I said last week um, with Pierre Andreessen. What Dame did when he came to Staples a couple days after Kobe had passed. Oh, my God, man. I'm not trying to see that dude. I'm not trying to see that dude at all. But I digress, y'all. Very entertaining opening night. And if you want to know more about my thoughts on what happened in the Jazz and Pelicans game, what happened on the Lakers and Clippers game, go check out Hoop and Holler. I'm not going to get too deep into that here. Just because I'm not trying to rehash my content. I already said that on Hoop and Holler uh, podcast, if you guys don't know about it, that I do with my friends. Julio uh, Martinez and Eddie Sun, we do a very good job. It's starting to get so natural, man. This podcasting stuff, when you do it by yourself, it's particularly hard because there's nothing to bounce off anyone. You are the conversation, right? That's part of why I like to throw in those um, the little sound effects. Because there's nothing for me to say to anyone else. It's just me and the mic. So... Doing it with other people, it's a lot. It's a little bit more fun for me because you get to bounce ideas off other people. You get to have debates. You get to have disagreements. You get to you know do all that stuff that you'd see in a normal conversation. Um, and it's getting so natural with those boys, man. We started that at around the beginning of last school year, so that would have been September, somewhere around September of last year. Damn near a year from now. Jeez, has it really been that long? Wow. Almost a year ago, we started Hoop and Holler. Um, so yeah, if you want to see my thoughts, Eddie's thoughts, Julio's thoughts on what happened on opening night and our uh, picks for the NBA awards, go to, make sure you go check out Hoop and Holler. Same place you can get my podcast, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. But on this note of the NBA return, while I'm not going to talk about the gameplay, I do want to talk about the social justice messaging that we've been seeing. Because a concern of mine, and I know it was a sentiment shared by a lot of people, was that in returning to play, the NBA would be diverting the attention of the American populace to things that we don't need to be focused on right now, right? We're in the midst of a pandemic. We're in the midst of what I deem to be the most important social movement in American history, and 
I was scared that they would uh, divert attention from those things. Those are the things that we need to be focused on right now. But the NBA, they promised us, you know, Adam Silver, the players, they said, we can do this and play at the same time. I was skeptical, skeptical of it, but I was willing to see what they would do with it. And I got to say, it exceeded my expectations thus far. Wildly exceeded my expectations. I, I mean, the coaches during their mid-game interviews, you know how they talk to the one of the coaches after each quarter. They're addressing it. Um, the players are addressing it in their post-game interviews. Uh, announcers are addressing it, you know, while they're announcing the game. There's commercials about it. You know, I, there, there's, there's no reason for me to think at this point in time that the NBA is going, that it's lost on the NBA, right? That we're in the midst of this important moment in American history. And I'm very much appreciative of it. And it's really good to see that the players are taking it upon themselves and the coaches are taking it upon themselves. The NBA as a community is taking it upon themselves to make sure that we don't just slap Black Lives Matter on the court and call it a day, right? They're doing a lot more than that. They're demanding for justice, for George Floyd, for Breonna Taylor, even when it's addressed by the announcers, right? There's not mincing words. They're not saying, well, an incident happened, da da da. This is what the players are doing. They're taking the objective point of view and calling it what it was, a murder. I was watching Doris Burke and I forget her cohort, but they, they when they addressed the Breonna Taylor situation, they called it what it was, a murder. That's something that's small, but it's vastly important to draw that distinction between an incident, quote unquote, in a murder, which is what it was. So like I said, I'm very impressed with what they've been able to accomplish. I hope they keep their foot on the gas. There's no reason for me to think that they won't. Um, Jimmy Butler did a very important thing, I think, today. And I actually want to, you know, let me give him a pat on the back real quick, because I initially I didn't really understand why he wanted to go out there with no name on his jersey, none of the social justice messaging on his jersey. But his reasoning for it, it made perfect sense to me. Jimmy Butler, he says, I don't want my name on the back of my jersey because I want to represent the thousands upon thousands, really upon millions upon millions of black men who have, and you guys know that Jimmy Butler is one of the more tragic, you know, stories in the NBA, but he was able to, you know, make a dollar out of 15 cents per se. But Jimmy Butler says there's millions upon millions upon millions of black men in this country who have stories like I do, who don't make it like I do. And they're nameless, essentially. People don't hear their stories. People don't care about what happens to them. And the second that I step off this NBA court and I'm no longer Jimmy Butler, the basketball player, I can easily become one of those men. So that's what his point was in saying, I don't want to wear anything on the back of his jersey, representing those millions of people that don't have their stories told. I agree with that sentiment 100%. I wish the NBA would let him do it. But it does not seem like they're going to allow him to do it at this point in time, which kind of sucks. But uh, I definitely, you know, if there's any chance that Jimmy Butler just so happens to listen to the Reagan Griffin Jr. show, which we all know he does. There's no reason why Jimmy Butler wouldn't be listening to this podcast right now. (laughs) Shout out to you, man, because that's a really, really good thing that I think you at least tried to do. And if nothing else, I think he'll at least go onto the court every game with a blank jersey on his back and then he'll probably end up having to switch it out just because the referees would tell him to but i do want to address right and obviously we all saw the kneeling that uh, that happened at the beginning of each of these games everybody's locking arms they're kneeling during the national anthem um 
and I'm not the type of dude to sit up here and bash anyone for not taking a knee because everyone's well within their right not to or to take a knee and everyone has the reasons for doing so. Uh, but I will say this, man, because I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to question your right to kneel or not kneel. But what I will do is question your reasons for it if I deem them to be flawed. And one dude who seemed to has have flawed reasoning is Jonathan Isaac. And again, this isn't me trying to belittle his religion. I'm a God fearing man myself. I'm not one for church. And I, I really don't know my Bible like that, but I do believe in God and I'm not going to make this into a religious podcast, but I'm going to say that uh, a lot of times I feel like what happens when these really important issues come up, people like to bypass responsibility and we see it happen with patriotism and when, when people hold sentiments like America is the greatest country in the world, how can you have any complaints about this country? If you don't like it here, then leave. That's people trying to bypass any sort of responsibility to fixing the issues that we do have. And I think a lot of that happens sometimes when we talk about religion too. put it in the hands of God. Let Jesus take the wheel. And I'm not saying that, you know, and to be quite frank, I'm probably not the dude to talk about this sort of stuff because I'm not that religious of a person. I don't know the gospel like that. But just from my point of view, the point of, of a higher power, right? And like I said, I believe in a higher power. I believe in God. The point of God isn't to fix our problems and just say, well, if we pray, if we if we give our lives to God, we'll be all right. That's not that's not the point of God. That's not what he's there to do. It's not there to just wave a magic wand and fix everything. He gives us the tools. Right. He gives us the means to fix our own problems. That way we can do it ourselves. That's my belief. And again, I'm not here to impose my beliefs on anyone. That's just what I believe, that there's no reason that we should think that God is just going to wave a magic wand and racism is going to go away. And I don't know what sort of action that Jonathan Isaac has taken beyond not wearing the Black Lives Matter shirt and beyond not kneeling. I have no sort of insight into that. So I can't say one way or the other that he's doing something or he's not doing something. But I will say is that, you know, and this goes for any situation. Take it upon yourself to fix and rectify the situation. Don't just step back and allow and hope that somebody else, whether it be your parents, your, your siblings, friends, a higher power, there's, there's no situation that you can just step back and allow somebody else to fix. That's just not how that works. So I, I really hope that Jonathan Isaac understands that. Um, but as Forrest Gump would say, that's all I have to say about that. And that's all I have to say about that. I, that, that one just kind of, I wasn't quite sure what he was driving at with that. Just had to get that off my chest. What I do have more to say, though. Last Chance You, man. And if y'all haven't watched Last Chance You, honestly, what are you doing? Because there's been about five seasons and everyone in the sports world, at least in the football world, Everyone gets on these seasons. Everyone goes and watches it. A lot of people binge watch it like myself. Very entertaining thing. And this latest installment, season five of Last Chance U, I think it's the last time that they're going to do a football school. They're moving on to basketball moving forward, I believe. 
But this latest installment, it might be the best one yet. And by my vantage point, it is the best one yet. Because, like I said, I binge watched the whole thing in a day. And with the first two teams, uh, EMCC and ICC, it, it seemed like the documentarians, they went and they, they traversed the country and they ended up landing on these these programs with these heads, right? Buddy Stevens, who's the other guy? Jason Brown, I believe it was. Those two guys are very bombastic, outlandish, I think caricatures of what a football coach should be. They're always screaming and cussing and yelling at their players. I've, you know, played football or not I have. I played football in the past for a very long time. Coaches aren't generally that out of pocket in how they conduct themselves. So they found these two very dramatic figures at the head of programs and they said this is wh- this is what's going to sell. And it did sell to the credit it was very entertaining. But I always had in the back of my mind, this is not really how a football team is, right? Like when we think about a show like Dance Moms, not every dance team has that sort of drama. They just found this one particular dance team who's highly competitive and extremely dramatic. Real Housewives of Atlanta or what have you. Not every group of uh, friends, female friends, is that dramatic, but they happen to find these caricatures that are extremely dramatic. Jersey Shore, we see it all over mainstream media. We find the most dramatized versions of things, and that's what we put on display, but that's not what happened in season five of Last Chance You. That seemed like a very much more real, authentic representation of how a football team functions. You had the head coach, I believe his name is Jason, or no, John Beam, excuse me. John Beam, they're at Lacey College in Oakland, California. John is a 40-year, I think he's entering his 41st year as a head coach. And they just came off the season in which they'd upset a lot of teams and they'd won the championship on kind of this Cinderella run. So this is the season after that. And the drama wasn't a product of, you know, there's this figurehead who's doing all of this out-of-pocket outlandish stuff. But the drama was really in the the trials and tribulations of an actual football season. And I'm not going to spoil the thing because I want you guys to go check it out. But it seemed like a more accurate, authentic representation of what a football season actually looks like for a team. And that, to me, that that makes for a better show. Because I want to see something that's real. I don't want to see something that's, you know, overstated. And a lot of the drama, too, came by the fact that, if you guys aren't aware, California Junior College football, it's extremely difficult to get through and that's to say the least because you don't get scholarships right you don't get paid to go on campus and live there and get the food and all of that you get to play football you get to have an opportunity to go transfer to a d2 or a d1 school you get tape but you don't get a scholarship man so a lot of these dudes are having to figure out how do i uh you know get housing How do I feed myself? How do I get clothes? Things of that nature. Because you don't get that from the program. You have to figure all of that out for yourself. So because you're in California, JUCO, that's a lot of what these dudes are having to deal with. Some of them have to go get jobs in addition to playing football, which is a job in its own right, and going to school, which is a job in its own right. 
Some of them raising families, which is a hell of a job in its own right. You know what I mean? People have to go do so much stuff. And that's where the drama is coming from. Not this just flamboyant coach. That's what I appreciated about it. It seems so much more authentic. Last thing I want to mention is the fact that they did a really, really good job, I feel like, of setting the context of the situation. Um, And what I mean by that is, you know, not just focusing on Lacey and the college itself, but the surrounding area. Gentrification, man. Gentrification. They're in Oakland, California. And I know a lot of people have a decent understanding of what the concept of gentrification is, but it really dives into it a little bit. And the consequences of it because a lot of people they have this notion that you know gentrification all you do is go into a ghetto you put some money in there and now the ghetto's great no that's not how that works at all because a lot of times what happens with gentrification is yeah you fix up the area yeah you make it a safer place to live yeah you pump money into it but in doing all of that you're attracting a different group of people who eventually are pushing out the people that originally lived there, and now you lose the character of what the place was to begin with. And that's happening with Oakland right now. That's happening with Oakland right now. We think about how the Golden State Warriors dipped out of there. Now they're, they're over there with the Silicon Valley folks, uh, and, and there's a lot more money being pumped into that franchise. Uh, what's the, the Chase Center, right? We think about how the Oakland Raiders dipped out for Las Vegas, You're pushing out the things that made Oakland, Oakland in favor of what what might be a safer area. But now you're pushing all these people and they don't know what to do with their lives because this place that they had known and grown accustomed to is now no longer fit for them. So, you know, I think that's something that a lot of people need to know when we talk about gentrification is like we're not just improving the area. But we're also pushing the people that were there out of the area, which is not a good thing to do at all. There has to be a way to improve the area and allow the people that were there to benefit from those improvements as well. But that's what a lot of what it gets into it or a lot of what it gets into. And again, that's something I very much appreciate because, you know, that's an interesting topic to to delve into and not something that you'd expect from Last Chance You. But it does a very good job, particularly in one episode. I want to say it was the seventh episode. But... I definitely encourage you guys to go check that out. I don't want to spoil anything else. I will just say this. Dior, that dude is a dog, man. Y'all better believe at some point in the future, I'm going to, because right now it's all blowing up, right? It just came out, and I'm sure that dude's getting a lot of buzz right now. But at some point in the future, I am going to attempt to have Dior Walker Scott on this show. Because that dude, the resiliency that he displayed throughout that season, man, absolutely remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. That I mean, hats off to him. Hats off to him, man. I'll let you guys go watch it for yourself, but I'll leave it at that, man. Hats off to him. Jamal Adams, man. Jamal Adams. You, see, you guys like that transition? Why even think of a slick transition when you can just yell something? That, that's a transition in itself. Jamal Adams. Jamal Adams just got traded, man. And it's funny. It happened while I was recording last week's episode. So we're, we're about a week's removed from the actual transaction. But this is too big of a move for me not to address, even though it might have ran out of the news cycle by the time you guys are hearing it. 
Jamal Adams is no longer a New York Jet. He is currently a Seattle Seahawk. And I want to talk about it. The trade was Seattle received Jamal Adams and a 2022 fourth round pick. The Jets got a 2021 first round pick, a 2022 first round pick, a 2021 third round pick, and a solid player in Bradley McDougal. Now, I have friends that are Jets fans, particularly one in particular, particularly one in particular. That's a great sentence, Reagan. You're you're putting together some great sound bites right now. Um, One in particular, Jared Weinstein. Shout out to you, Jared. Very great supporter of the show. Love Jared to death. Um, And he was, him and his brother, because they're both Jets fans. Joel, shout out to Joel. They're both Jets fans, and they kind of had this conflict. Joel was like, man, this is an L. We lost Jamal Adams, one of the best safeties in the NFL. There's no way to look at this but to as an L. Jared's like, you know, this isn't necessarily the worst thing in the world. And... To be honest with y'all, I find myself somewhere in the middle. Because while it is an L, there's no way, and let me make this abundantly clear, there's no feasible way to trade a player as talented as Jamal Adams. I hope you guys are hearing me. There's no feasible way to trade a player as talented as Jamal Adams and win the trade. There's no way. He's part of a select class of players that are not QBs, but our franchise players. We're talking about Aaron Donald. We're talking about Derwin James. We're talking about Quentin Nelson, Miles Garrett, the Bosa brothers. That's the caliber of player that we're talking about here. Franchise players that are not quarterbacks. Jamal Adams is one of them. There's no way that you can trade that guy away and win the trade. So this is an L for the Jets. But when I slap some context on it, And I say, well, Jamal Adams had demanded a trade multiple times. Well, Jamal Adams clearly didn't want to be there. The Jets were probably losing leverage the more or the longer that that they had him on the roster. When I slap that context on it, this is probably the best that the Jets could have done given the cards that they were dealt. And I think that has to be said. You got two first round picks, a third round pick and a solid player for a guy that didn't even want to be in your locker room and had made that publicly known. That's about as good as you can do if you're the New York Jets in that situation. So hats off to them for, you know, extrapolating the maximal value. But again, it's still an L because you lost a player of the caliber of Jamal Adams. There's no way to win that. Um, As far as the Jets are concerned, they're just really, really unlucky, man. I mean, even today, C.J. Mosley opted out. I'm not sure uh, what his reasons were, but, like, you know, any player that opts out of a season this year I think is well within their rights to do that just be given, just given the, um, the uncertainty of it all. But that's just, again, unfortunate for the Jets, and they keep on finding themselves in these unfortunate situations where Le'Veon Bell is really kind of – he's seen like he's been on the fence – since the dude got there. Jamal Adams doesn't want to be there. C.J. Mosley opts out. Players keep getting injured. Uh, Robbie Anderson leaves. Jamison Crowder can't stay on the field. Sam Darnold comes down with a mono. They just keep on finding themselves in these unfortunate situations, and it seems like they can never climb their way out of the hole that they consistently dig for themselves. Maybe these first-round picks help them out. Maybe that's just what they need is to try to hit the reset button once more. 
start things over from the ground up. I don't know. Um, I'm a very big fan of Joe Douglas. He's the current general manager for the for the Jets. And if y'all don't know, that's a guy that went from Philly. He worked under Howie Roseman. He was part of putting together that Super Bowl roster. I liked him a lot. I hated to see him go, but if I'm looking at things objectively, he has not done the greatest job up there in New York. I am a big believer in him. I will continue to be a big proponent of him, but he has not done that great of a job thus far. Jets fans, you should continue to believe in Joe Douglas, though. I will swear by that. Joe Douglas is a guy that knows what he's doing. On the Seahawks end, congratulations. You just got Jamal Adams. And... You gave away a 2021 first-round pick. And Bomani Jones on first take this week, he brought up a really good, uh, I, I think, a concept about the 2021 draft that not a lot of people are discussing yet, and that's the possibility that there might not be a college football season this year. And because there not, might not be a college football season this year, that would make it extremely difficult to evaluate the players as they're coming into the NFL. The, the most valuable thing to evaluating a player is this tape. And if you don't have last season's tape to go off of, it could be extremely difficult to evaluate players. So that 2021 first round pick, if there's no college football season, is not going to be as valuable as we all think it is. Especially not to a team like the Seahawks, man. Look at what they do with their first round picks. Just look back at the last couple of drafts. What have they been doing with their first rounders, man? LJ Collier. Rashad Penny, who else? Jermaine Ifedi. The last time the Seahawks had like a, a good first round pick, maybe Frank Clark. That was solid. He's not on the team anymore, but Frank, Frank Clark was a good player. But they don't really generally use their first round picks in the way that they should. It's almost like they have this philosophy that they get a list of guys that they like, and we just say, okay, who's the highest guy on that list? You know, they don't really draft for value. They just draft for what they like. And it's worked for them, to their credit. It has worked for them. They swing on miss on some of their first-round picks, but they damn sure hit on those middle and late-round picks. That's how they build their roster, trading players and hitting on those middle and late-round picks. So that doesn't really hurt the Seahawks a whole lot to lose those first-rounders. It helps the Jets because they hit on their first-rounders all right. But it doesn't really hurt the Seahawks as much as a lot of people say it does, in my mind, especially when you're trying to win now. That's a team, and I'm, it's funny, I'm looking at a, Bobby, a signed Bobby Wagner picture right now. I went to a football camp when I was younger. He was there, got a signed picture, signed hat, all that good stuff. But guys like Bobby Wagner, guys like Russell Wilson, guys like Mike Upati, Dwayne Brown, K.J. Wright, they're all on the wrong side of 30. So the window for the Seahawks is still open. It just got even wider with Jamal Adams there, but it's closing because you have aging players that, you know, in maybe three, four years, they're out of their prime. So you got to capitalize on the talent that you have now, and Jamal Adams helps you to do that. The winner of this trade, like I said, there's no way you can win it if you're the Jets. The winner of this trade is the Seahawks, but moral victory for the Jets. You get you, you, a little pat on the back. Good job, buddy. You did the best you could. Um, but yeah, that's an L. You can't, you can't, I'll say it again, you cannot trade a player as talented as Jamal Adams and win the trade. That's the bottom line. Let's move on to the top 100 players in the NFL. Every year, NFL Network, they get a bunch of NFL players. They give them voting ballots or whatever. 
and they say, who are the top 100 players in the NFL as voted on by the NFL players? Very good concept because everyone wants to know, right? We value these guys' opinions. They know what they're doing. They made it to the highest level. I want to see what they think. And I like to think of myself as a person who understands and acknowledges, you know, the competency of professional athletes as it relates to their respective sports. Um, That's kind of a mouthful. Basically, what I mean is I generally accept the fact that, you know, because Kirk Cousins is an NFL football player, because uh, Patrick Beverly is an NBA basketball player, you know, they're going to know more about their sports than I possibly can. I can sit back and I can study film, I can read articles, I can do everything within my power to try to educate myself on sports, and I do, but there's no replacement for living and breathing that stuff and doing it for a living. Nine times out of ten, those guys know what they're talking about, at least as it relates to the functions of how their sport operates. Sometimes I question whether or not they understand how good players are. And I mean that with the utmost respect. Because again, I concede the fact that it is highly likely that most people who play the sport professionally know more about the sport than I do. I'm not too arrogant to disregard the fact. But I also know bullshit. What's your profanity? I've studied enough of NFL football, of NBA basketball, to know bullshit when I see it. And when we talk about a top 100 players list in the NFL that doesn't start with Patrick Mahomes as the number one player, I feel like that's bullshit. When we talk about a list that has a generationally talented offensive lineman in Quentin Nelson at number 29, I feel like it's bullshit. When we talk about Ryan Tannehill, this was the guy the NFL was damn near done with, at least as a starting quarterback for a while. This is Ryan Tannehill that was backing up Marcus Mariota less than a year ago. Ahead of Earl Thomas, generationally talented safety. Granted, Earl Thomas is on the older side, but he's not no scrub. I mean, he made the list. He's obviously not a scrub, but Ryan Tannehill ahead of Earl Thomas. I smell bullshit. I smell bullshit. And don't even get me started on the fact that Carson Wentz. (laughs) Y'all know how I feel about Carson Wentz, man. 13 quarterbacks better than Carson Wentz. Carson Wentz didn't even make the list. Apparently, he's not the top 100 players in the NFL. But then there's 13 quarterbacks. A list of 13 quarterbacks including guys like Ryan Tannehill, like Jimmy Garoppolo, like gosh darn Dak Prescott that are better than Carson Wentz. It's bullshit. Pardon my French, but that's bullshit. Ain't no way in hell. And like I said, It's very likely that all of those players who voted know more about football than I am, but I'm not going to be afraid to call out bullshit when I see it. That list was bullshit. That list makes absolutely zero sense, and I have to call it out when I see it. 
Um, but I'm not going to spend this entire episode or the remainder of this episode talking about Carson Wentz as much as I know you guys would like that. I'm sure you guys are tired of hearing me talk about Carson Wentz. But what I am going to talk about is I'm going to use this opportunity to give you my top 10 wide receivers in the NFL. And the reason I'm doing that is because Keenan Allen, when he saw the list, he had a beef with it. He feels like he's a perpetually underrated wide receiver. And it ignited this conversation of who are the best wide receivers in the NFL. And I'm going to capitalize on that ignition and tell you who I believe to be the top 10 wide receivers in the league. Now, I think I have a particular apt for understanding the receiver position just because I played it throughout high school. and I feel like it's one of the ones that I'm better at evaluating. So for whatever that's worth to you. Let's go ahead and get started. I'm going to give you my honorable mentions. I have three dudes that could have easily made this list, but certain, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Certain realities of their situation has stopped me from putting them on the list. That's not the way I wanted to say that, but you guys get the gist. One on my honorable mentions list, Chris Godwin. Chris Godwin could very easily be a top 10 in the uh, league right now. I just have to see more than one year of production of it. The first year or or two years ago, he showed flashes of what he could be. This year, he proved to us what he could be. I need to see that for another season or two before I'm willing to say, okay, that's a top 10 receiver because we've seen a lot of receivers pop off and then disappear. So I need to see it on a consistent basis before I throw him into my top 10. But if I was basing it off this past season, he's probably a top 10 receiver. Not, Not even probably. He's easily a top 10 receiver. Allen Robinson. Definitely has top 10 receiver talent. He probably has a top three worst situation. And since he's entered the league, if I'm talking about wide receiver situations since he's entered the league, he probably has had the worst. We're talking about a dude who caught balls from Blake Bortles and Mitch Trubisky. I really want to see what uh, Allen Robinson looks like with a competent quarterback. And we could have seen that this year with Nick Foles. I feel like Nick Foles would have done really well in that Matt Nagy offense, just he has that certain level of familiarity. Nick Foles uh, played under him in Kansas City. Or, or no, he played under Doug Peterson in Kansas City, but Matt Nagy is also a product of that Andy Reid coaching tree. So there's probably similar traits within their offenses. I think he would have done well, but Nick Foles opted out. Obviously, he's a family man. He has a daughter. He wants to make sure that he keeps her as safe as possible. So he's not going to play this year. So Allen Robinson is stuck with who again? Mitchell Trubisky unfortunate. So I can't put Allen Robinson as much as I would like to. I can't put him in my top 10 because the production is not there. And the production, frankly, can't be there because of who his quarterbacks are. Next up, last one of my honorable mentions, I have Adam Thielen. I like Adam Thielen a lot. He kind of had a down year last season. Um, I don't know. I, I think this is more of an honorable mention where I'm saying he's just outside of the top 10. He's not really a top 10 receiver in my mind, but he's good enough to where I'll give him a nod. All right, let's go ahead and start with a top 10. Should we go 1 through 10 or 10 through 1? You said 10 through 1? Cool. Um, Number 10, Stefan Diggs. Diggs is a very good route runner. Um, he creates a lot of space with ease. He's capable of playing on the inside and the outside. Obviously, everyone knows him because of the Minneapolis Miracle. And I was very torn between him and Godwin for that spot. But um, like I said, 
The reason I give Stefan Diggs a nod is because I've seen multiple years of production from Diggs. I've only seen about one and a half from Godwin. So Diggs better watch his ass because Godwin's coming. But for now, I'm giving that nod to Diggs. It'll be interesting what he's, to see what he does in Buffalo this year. Um, whether or not Josh Allen, that's another dude who they ranked ahead of Carson Wentz. I'm sorry. Let me go off on a tangent. That's another dude who they ranked ahead of Carson Wentz. Are we serious? What are we doing here, people? What the hell are we doing when we say Josh Allen, Jimmy Garoppolo, Kirk Cousins, Dak Prescott, Ryan Tannehill are all better quarterbacks than Carson Wentz? You couldn't have been watching the same game I was watching. I digress, man. Stephon Diggs is number 10. Number nine, the guy who is the reason that we started this list, Keenan Allen. He reignited this conversation. He feels like he's a perpetually underrated receiver. And to be honest with you, I'm not sure. I don't have a great gauge on where other people rate Keenan Allen. But if you have him outside, if most people have him outside of their top 10, then yeah, he's underrated because he's easily a top 10 receiver. The dude's one of the better route runners in the game consistent production it's just no one really pays a whole lot of attention to what goes on with that Chargers team but Keenan Allen is definitely up there in terms of receiver oh yeah no 100 100% great hands I mean the dude he's a baller man for sure number eight Amari Cooper another really good route runner this is three straight really good route runners I hope you guys are noticing a trend here three straight really good route runners that are my top 10 wide receivers in the NFL now, I've been watching Amari Cooper really just obliterate my team because I'm an Eagles fan. You all should know this by now. I'm an Eagles fan. I've been watching Amari Cooper. Ooh, nice finish. Y'all, y'all know I'm still watching this uh, Pelicans game. Ooh, they're getting their ass handed to him. But that was a nice little finish. I think by Nikhil Alexander-Walker. Yeah. But anyway, I've been watching Amari Cooper tear my, my team apart, a new one, year in and year out, twice a year, every year for the past couple of seasons since he got traded from Oakland. And hopefully it gets better with Darius Slay. Now that he's in town, Darius Slay is going to trade him or trail him, I should say. But Amari Cooper is just a baller, man. He is an absolute baller. That dude creates separation with such ease. His top end speed is extremely underrated. I mean, we knew since the dude came out of Bama, the dude was going to be a baller. And, and now that he's in Dallas get, catching passes from Dak Prescott, he's definitely fulfilling that. The only question with him is whether or not his head is consistently in the game. I remember there was one possession, I think last year, where he came out of the game. It was either last year or two years ago, but he came out of the game. And it was a really critical moment. And he wasn't injured. He was just out of the game for whatever reason. And, and that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. But when that dude's locked in, yeah, Amari Cooper's a top 10 receiver in this league, no doubt. Number seven, Mike Evans. This might be kind of low for some people for Mike Evans. I think it's fitting. He's the first real, like, physically imposing guy that I have on this list. He's not one of these quick route runners. Um, he, though he does have underrated speed, and I'm not, this isn't to say that he's a bad route runner. I just don't think that's what he really, you know, wins with. He wins with his size and his uh, physicality. Very quietly productive year in and year out. Obviously, he's down there with Tampa Bay having Jameis Winston throw him a lot of balls. Um, I almost wonder, and this isn't me trying to knock Mike Evans, but I almost wonder if his production takes a bit of a dip just because, you know, Jameis was such a risk taker. And if you have a receiver that you're going to take risks with, Mike Evans is a pretty good guy to do it. That's a guy who's 6'5", he can go up and get it. 
Tom Brady isn't that that level of a risk taker. He can't push the ball down the field like Jameis Winston can. I wonder if his production takes a hit this year. That's just a question that I have in my mind. But obviously, I like him as a receiver. He's number seven on my list. I very much like what he brings to the table. I'm trying to remember because there was two receivers in the draft when he came out. And I forget who the other one was. Man. Sammy Watkins, that's who it was, Sammy Watkins out of Clemson. He's Sammy Watkins, obviously a good receiver, but when you look at the guys who were drafted after him, Mike Evans, Odell Beckham, Brandon Cooks, I remember I always thought it was interesting because I remember thinking, you know, the guys after him kind of panned out a lot better than the guys before him, but I digress. Mike Evans, number seven receiver in the NFL. Number six, Mr. Odell Beckham Jr. Now, viewer, I know what you're thinking. Number six is way too low. I'm sure a lot of you guys are thinking that. I'm sure this is a pretty split thing where there's 50% of you guys who are like, yes, he's not a top five receiver anymore. His production has taken a dip. He has injury concerns. I would not put him in my top five either. And then there's another faction of you who are probably like, what are you doing? The fact that you don't have my or Odell in your top five discredits the entire list. Here's why I don't have him in my top five. And it's because of what I just mentioned. The production took a dip last year. I think Odell most definitely has a top 10 talent. Should Odell pick up his production again this season with Stefanski? Hopefully Baker Mayfield taps into whatever he tapped into during his rookie season. If we see the Odell Beckham of old... He's easily a top five receiver, but I'm not just going to give him a top five receiver because of what he was able to do two, three years ago. I got to see it again. That's why he's not in my top five as it stands right now. He could easily be in my top five by week four of next season if Stefanski figures it out. Because remember, Stefanski's coming from Minnesota. And he did a really good job of saying, okay, we're going to focus on the run game and we're going to utilize the run game to create in the pass game. We're going to focus on the run. We're going to be a run first team. And then from there, we're going to open up the pass game. That opened up the doors for uh, Thielen and, and Stefan Diggs at the end of the season, though in the beginning of the season, they were complaining about their targets, or at least Diggs was. Hopefully, Stefanski is able to figure it out. And if he does, and Odell picks up his production again, he'll easily be in my top five. But as it stands right now, no, sir. He's number six, knocking on the door, but not there yet. Number five, Devontae Adams. Devontae Adams, and it was really, really tough, you guys, between number four and number five, and it ultimately just came down to it. This could easily be a 4A and 4B, but it came down to who I like better as a receiver, and it's really just personal preference. You could order this either way. But I have Devontae Adams at number five. And he's a dude that's really in the unfortunate situation where there's no other offensive weapons around him. No one else for the defense to focus on. So all the energy is placed on Devontae Adams. Yet he somehow prevails beyond that and is consistently putting up really, really good numbers. Aaron Rodgers wasn't the dude that he where we've come to expect him to be last season. Part of that could be because I remember uh, Devontae Adams, he ended up getting turf toe. In week two, I believe it was against Philadelphia. It was either week two or three. And that had him out for a decent chunk of the season. 
Um, but he was killing us up to that point. He might have had like 200 yards or something like that. He was absolutely obliterating our secondary up to that point until he got turf toe. And that's part of the reason why we ended up winning that game is because he wasn't on the field for that final kind of goal line stand. But I digress. Um, Devontae Adams, really talented receiver, another really, really good route runner. Y'all, understand this because I'm up to number five now. We ran through 10 through five. And four of those five dudes are all top, top tier, upper echelon route runners. That is the most important skill besides actually catching the ball that a receiver has to have. If you can't create separation in running routes, there's no prayer for you in the NFL unless you're a physical specimen. There's no prayer for you. You have to be able to run routes. You young receivers out there, work on that now. Go hit them ladders. Go actually run routes. Because a lot of people just like to do ladders and think they'll be able to run routes. But you actually have to run routes to become a good route runner. Find somebody who can play your, your DB and try to beat them. That's the only way you'll become a good route runner. And being a good route runner is the only way that you'll be a truly great receiver. Um... Like I said, I I'm keep I keep on going off on these tangents, but it's such an important thing to have as a, a receiver, especially at the NFL level. I talked about this last week. Up all the way through NFL or through college, you can get away with just being a really really good athlete. Once you hit the NFL, you have to be able to create separation because everyone's a really really good athlete. If you can't be a really good route runner, and that's why I prefer Jerry Judy over Ceedee Lamb, and this isn't to say that I don't think Ceedee Lamb's going to be really good. I just think Jerry Judy has a higher ceiling because he's such one hell of a route runner. But I digress. Devontae Adams at number five and the number four who made the decision so difficult. I ended up giving the edge to Tyree Kill. And again, this is just a matter of preference. And the reason I love Tyree Kill so much, he's been one of my favorite players in the NFL since he got to Kansas City. One word, man. Five letters. Speed. Speed, 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 speed kills, especially when you combine it with the abilities that Tyree Kill has, because he has those supplementary abilities. He can route run. He can go up and get jump balls. He can win at the point of the catch. He can do all of that great things in addition to having his speed. So it makes him so dangerous. Um, and then we, we talk about this thing called gravity, um, when, especially when we talk about Stephen Curry in basketball, how Defenses have to focus so much on Stephen Curry that it opens things up for his teammates. Same sort of thing, but put on a football field for Tyree Kill. Because he can blow the top off your defense, and because there's really, I mean, the corner that can stay with Tyree Kill on a go route is it's few and far between. Most teams that play the Kansas City Chiefs, they can't put a corner on an island. They have to have a safety over top, which already changes the entire game plan for you. If you're not a cover two team, that's changing the entire game plan if you're not if you're planning on having a safety over top. You can't run, you know, you can't run cover one on uh, on the Kansas City Chiefs. You can't just have one safety back there. You can try to run cover three and hope that that corner, given that head start, can keep up. But that's taking a risk in its own right. So a lot of teams end up having to play cover two, which throws a kind of monkey wrench into their game plan. So that's just the, these are the type of things that you have to account for because of Tyree Kill. He's that much of a game changer, that much of a difference maker. 
Um, I just very, very much love his game. He's one of those dudes that's just such a great playmaker. You get the ball in his hands, and he makes it happen, man. Whether it's a slant route, whether it's a screen route, whether it's a go route, a post right, a post corner, he has every route in his bag. He can make it happen, especially when you have a dude like Patrick Mahomes who can extend plays and has a cannon of an arm. It's just a match made in heaven, man. Number three, Michael Thomas. I'm sorry, Saints fans. I'm sorry. I know. For the things I've done And I try and be stronger In this life I chose But I want you to know That door I close In your honor I'm sorry, 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 sorry Saints fans, I get it. I get it. I know you're frustrated. How is it that your guy, year in and year out, puts up these insane numbers. But no one wants to put him at number one in the league, except for Madden. They had him at 99 overall. But no one wants to put Michael Thomas as their best receiver in the league. I know, Saints fans. I know, I know, I know. But I have to acknowledge the volume. The numbers are so insane. And this isn't to discredit him because I know... That in order to get as many targets and catches as Mike Thomas does, that means you have to be getting consistently open and you have to catch the ball at a high rate. He has some of the best hands in the league. But because his volume is so insane, that's why his numbers are so insane. So when I'm talking about the most gifted, talented wide receivers, like I can't just stop it at production, right? Other things have to factor in for me other than just what numbers you're putting up. That's where, where the ball kind of drops for me with Michael Thomas. The volume, it's, it's kinda, it's a, it's a, it sticks out like a, like a sore thumb. I like Michael Thomas a lot. He's one of the best receivers in this game's history. By the, when it's all said and done, that dude's going to have numbers up there with some of the, the goats of all time. But to me, he's third best receiver in the game. And that, that's, that, there's something to be said for that. That's a, a second-round receiver, third best receiver in the game. I'm sorry, Saints fans. I can't put him at number one or even number two because number two is DeAndre Hopkins. I can't in good conscience say that Michael Thomas is better than DeAndre Hopkins after some of the things that I've seen DeAndre Hopkins do. That dude's just so... He's one of the, the more physical receivers in the game. Some of the... We talked about Michael Thomas's hands. DeAndre Hopkins' hands might be even better, man. I mean, the dude has some of the surest hands in the game. Might be the surest hands in the game. Better than Thomas. Better than Odell. He might have the most sure hands in the NFL. Um, he was the only saving grace for Deshaun Watson while he was in Houston, right? Because Phil Will Fuller would always be hurt. And, you know, there was never really that great of receiving talent around Deshaun Watson except for DeAndre Hopkins, which opened things up for other players. I very, very, very much like DeAndre Hopkins' game, man. Such, like I said, physical. I'm excited to see what he does in Arizona now that he's surrounded by talented, healthy receivers. What having a guy like Christian Kirk, a guy like Larry Fitzgerald, what that does for him in terms of, you know, either a team has to make a choice in saying we're going to pay all of this attention to DeAndre Hopkins and open things up for guys like Kirk and Fitzgerald, or we're going to spread things around a little bit and run the risk of DeAndre Hopkins killing us. Well, either way, that Arizona Cardinals team is going to be very, 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 very good. Oh, no, my battery's running low. Whew, 
All right, number one, we have Julio Jones. Does anything else have to be said? If you don't think Julio Jones is the best receiver in the NFL, we got to have a conversation because I know the production sometimes a little bit iffy. I chalk that up to what they're doing offensively. They still haven't figured out a way to, you know, have things mesh perfectly down there in Atlanta. And I wonder why sometimes they just don't throw the ball to Julio because that seems like they have the, the best option. That seems like their best offensive option. <laughs> just throw the ball to Julio, man. That dude comes down with it. He scares me as an Eagles fan. That dude, we played the, or the Falcons so many times over the past couple of years. And each and every time, that dude is just a scary. I mean, we're talking about a dude who runs sub 4-4, four, 6-3, four, strong as an ox, insanely good route running for his size. Creates separation, does the little things, blocks extremely well. If you had to build an NFL receiver, it probably looks like Julio Jones and plays like Julio Jones. I, for the life of me, I can't understand why some people don't view him as the number one receiver in the NFL. Sometimes I feel like teams play into it. Um, you know, favoritism plays into it a little bit. But Julio Jones, man, it just doesn't get any better than that dude in the NFL. If you want to have that argument with me, we can have that argument. But you're starting at a disadvantage, man, because that dude, to me, top 10 receiver all time when we're talking about talent. And sometimes the production lapses. And, you know, that isn't because the production is there a lot, too. The last season, it was kind of a lapse. But the production is there a lot for Julio Jones. It was just last season. Not, well, not that great. But when we're talking about the most talented receivers to ever step on a football field, Julio Jones is up there, up there, up there. So he's my number one receiver in the NFL. That is the list. Top 10 receivers all time. Let me know what you think. Give me your comments, all that good stuff. Make sure you go follow the Instagram, man. I'm trying to interact more on Instagram. Um, shout out to y'all, by the way. Last week's um, last week's episode with Pierre, that was the most viewed episode in this show's history. The most viewed episode in this show's history. So thank you guys so, so much for that. You know, I try to avoid allowing views to be my validation, but it's nice to see. But I like it when people listen to my stuff. So to see that be the most viewed, it was definitely very much appreciated. Make sure you go follow the Instagram. Make sure you go hook up with the YouTube. I put out a lot of, um, you know, condensed segments out on YouTube. Go, uh, go look all that stuff up. This outro is kind of subpar, but it is what it is. Sometimes I'm not always going to be on my game, but I'm always going to do my best because that's what I try to bring into the show. Thank you guys all so much for tuning in. I will see you next week.